back in Luke 16. And uh, we're going to be looking at the next section together, verses 39 down through verse 42. We'll get to that in just a minute. As I was listening to Jana's song, I was thinking about a phrase. Maybe you've heard this one. We started last week with a couple of common phrases that we hear so often in our, in our culture. Things like, don't you judge me. Who are you to judge? Another one might be this. Have you ever seen anybody do something wrong? Wrong as in morally wrong? And they're confronted with that moral truth, and the response is something like this. Well, it's a free country. You know, I was listening to the song Janet just sang, Freedom Isn't Free. True. But nor is freedom absolute. We live in a world today where right and wrong, moral, immoral, is a conversation most in our country would prefer we just didn't have. Because right and wrong is increasingly defined by an individual. What is right and wrong for me might not necessarily be right and wrong for you, and so therefore you have no right to tell me that any action that I am committing is wrong. As a nation, we are losing the sense of morality. We are losing the sense of a clearly defined morality. Morality is not defined by me. Morality not defined by even our politicians, but rather a morality that is defined by someone far greater than any of us, and that being the morality of the eternal creator, God. But here's where we are. When we do have, in a sense, the audacity to tell another person that what they are doing is wrong or they are doing something immoral, we are immediately accused of being judgmental. We talked a lot about that last week. Unkind. Unloving. Mean. Haters are filled with phobia. We're unchristian when we tell another person that they are living Contrary to Scripture, we are almost increasingly considered to be unchristian and unloving when we tell someone that they have violated God's Word and therefore they are living in sin. My question is this for us this morning. Does biblical Christianity teach that there is no place for loving correction? Does the Bible teach that we are always to overlook things that God says are sinful and immoral, are we always simply to overlook them, ignore them? Or does the Bible teach us that there is a right way, a biblical way, in fact, a loving way to confront and to correct sin? The question is, how and when do we know what to do? So in these verses, we're going to see that God has called us to righteous behavior. He's going to tell us to watch who you follow and watch where you look. But this morning, I want us to look at these verses through this lens. 
believers can confront sin lovingly, graciously, and with a spirit of meekness, while not being judgmental, condemning, or mean-spirited. So read these verses with me, if you would, beginning in verse number 39. Remember, last week, for the sake of time, we won't rehearse this again, but verse 37, judge not, don't be condemning, uh, be forgiving, and then he goes through good measure that God's grace will be given to you as you extend it to other people. And now notice in verse 39, again, people who say, who are you to judge, always run to verse 37, judge not, and the word there really carrying the idea of don't be judgmental, make sure that I am judging right and wrong based on Scripture, not on my own opinion, or not with a spirit of superiority. But then in verses 39 through 42, watch what Jesus does. And he spake a parable unto them, and he said, Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above the master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. And why beholdest thou the mote in thy brother's eye, and perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye, either how can thou, cast, can thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye, you hypocrite. First cast out the beam that is in your own eye, and then you shall be able to see clearly to pull the mote that out of your brother's eye, the one that is in your brother's eye. Jesus says, don't judge, don't condemn. And then he tells us how to judge. The idea of don't judge is to don't stand in a superiority place, don't stand in the place of God, don't judge people based on your own sense of righteousness. But notice what he tells us. He begins now to explain it, and he starts to give us this parable that is going to picture it for us. And notice in verse 39, he gives us this first picture, and he says, the blind cannot correctly lead the blind. This is a warning about the ineffectual guidance of one blind person who is trying to lead another blind person. This pictures very poor spiritual guidance. Neither are going to go anywhere in a productive manner because they are not discerning, they're spiritually blind They are not able to follow according to what God's Word says. Blindness, by the way, is used metaphorically in the Old Testament. It's also used in the New Testament to describe those who are void of truth and lacking spiritual truth. Yes, he is using a physical picture. Somebody who is unable to see, someone who is unable uh, to visually make decisions, and they are now leading other people who are also unable to see Physically, that is going to be problematic. But he is also talking spiritually. Notice 1 John 2, verse 11, But he who hates his brother is in darkness, and walks in darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Blindness is also associated with following Satan. Notice Acts 26. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, but they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who sanctified by faith in me. 2 Corinthians 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds 
The God of this age has blinded, who does not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. So blindness really is talking about those who are spiritually blind and they are not following the teachings of Christ. So Jesus, as he begins to unpack this parable, he tells them that the leaders, in particular those who he is going to have very strong words for, the Pharisees and the scribes and others, they were blind to who Jesus was, and so therefore they were dangerous people to follow. Follow only those who have a clear spiritual perception. Notice what he says, that if the blind is leading the blind, they are both going to fall into the ditch. Matthew seven fifteen. Jesus said it this way, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now he gives us a second picture. That is in verse 40. He talks about the pupil, and he says that the pupil cannot follow his teacher until he submits to him. There is a recognition that a pupil becomes like the teacher. Therefore, we have to be careful who we choose to follow. In the ancient world, we know that the pupil-teacher relationship was a very personal one. The pupil often lived virtually with its teacher, with his teacher. And through this nurturing, the teacher and the pupil inevitably became like one another. So Jesus begins this parable with this picture. Number one, make sure you're following people who are not spiritually blind. Follow only those who understand truth. Follow those who have a right relationship with me. Number two, understand that you are going to become like those who you are following. You're going to become like your teachers. Now, after he says that, he now returns back to this issue of how do we then judge one another? Okay? And sometimes, it's happened to me recently, somebody said, well, you know, churches today have just become so judgmental. And I said, could you explain that to me? What do you mean by that? And they said, well, you know, they, they have certain preferences that they like, and so they judge the rest of the world on that, and, and they're judgmental. And I said, well, let me ask you this. If a church says that a particular activity is sinful... It's wrong. We used the illustration last week of of lying. If I said to you that lying is, in fact, sin, and if you lie, you need to repent of that sin because you're sinning against God, am I being judgmental? And he said, well, for the lack of a better word, yes. And I said, you're wrong. That's not judgmental. That's truth. How are you ever going to grow spiritually and understand right from wrong if we don't want to hear about something being morally right and something being morally wrong? I agree. There are things, there are times that churches will judge people based on certain things, preferences or whatever, that churches, not grace, but churches have become arrogant and condescending because if you don't do it our way and you don't do it exactly how we do it, then you're sinning. That is judgmental. That is saying the way that our family does it, if your family does it differently, 
our family's right, your family's wrong. That's judgmental. But if you're out robbing banks and you're out taking someone's life innocently, you're out committing adultery, you're in sin. And we're at a place in American history that is unacceptable. Who are you to tell me that I am doing something wrong? Friends, absolute freedom is anarchy. God has always put boundaries around human behavior because, in fact, the freedom that we long for, the freedom to do whatever I want and the freedom to just live outside the boundaries of what God says are clearly moral and those things that are clearly immoral does not bring freedom. The Bible says, in fact, that produces slavery. Slavery to sin. So, friend, I would argue that as believers, as mature understand, believers who are maturing in Christ, we are commanded by God to speak the truth in love and to rightfully, quote-unquote, judge those who are in sin, not with judgmentalism and not with a spirit of condemnation. Notice how Jesus says, to do it. He begins with a question. He says, And why beholdest thou the mote in thy brother's eyes, but perceivest not the beam that is in your own eye? Let me explain this a little bit. This word mote in the King James language means a speck. It's a flake of wood or chaff or straw. I remember growing up, uh, we, the only heat we had was wood. And we spent many nights out chopping wood. And inevitably, you would hit the wood with an axe or whatever. And sometimes a little piece of, of wood would land in your eye. That was back when we were tough. We didn't wear safety goggles and you know, stuff for babies like that. And it would get in your eye. And you would go in the mirror, and it was painful, and it was hurting. And your eye was getting red, and you would you know, pry your eye open. And there's one small speck of wood that is stuck in your eye. Notice the other picture. He talks about this beam. This is the main beam of a building. I like my friend's illustration. This is a telephone pole. You're walking around with a telephone pole sticking out of your eye, and usually when you're doing that, you are judgmental and condemning, and because you have this 30-foot-long beam sticking out your eye. You're whacking everybody as you're going through life, just taking everybody out, judging everybody's little teeny faults and flaws, and you're just bap, 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 across everybody, and that's not effective for anybody. The picture is hyperbole, okay? He's making an overstatement. He's making a contrast. That, that, in fact, this, this contrast could hardly be greater. Why is the critic concerned with a speck that is caught in someone else's eye when he has a telephone pole protruding from his own eye. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say there was one believer who's struggling with the sin of covetousness. In fact, this believer went out and he made a foolish purchase. He bought something 
He did not need, and he bought this thing on debt, and because of his covetousness, he purchased this, and another brother who has been arrested for robbing banks to feed his covetousness comes to him and says, you know, you shouldn't covet. And you're still in the process of robbing banks in order to feed your insatiable desire for more things. We would look at that and we would say, that's ridiculous. Or maybe better yet, Jesus said that if you hate your brother without cause, in fact, you are a murderer. And so there's a passing moment in your heart where you're upset with somebody and you hate that person. And Jesus says, by definition, you are a murderer. And a man who has slaughtered 25 people brutally comes to you and says, you're in sin. And he has no remorse over anything that he's done. That is absolutely ridiculous. So really, what Jesus is saying here between the speck and the beam, they are figures for personal faults. But I want you to notice, they are both worthy of correction. Jesus' question is this, what nerve does someone have who is in a life-dominating problem? person is having an affair with multiple people, offering you marital advice. What nerve do they have to be concerned with the minor in comparison issues in someone else's life? You know what Jesus says? The picture is, you are to deal with the unresolved issues in your life before you go and address the issue that is someone else is facing. He doesn't tell you to not do it. He says you do it in a right spirit, making sure that the first person who is confronted with whether or not they're in sin is you. What is judgmental is when I have blatant sin in my life and I'm overlooking it, ignoring it, pretending like it doesn't exist, but I'm going around condemning everybody else and putting everybody else down and confronting their sin and ignoring my own. He says, in verse 42, Either how can thou say to thy brother, Behold, let me pull the mote out of your eye, the speck out of your eye, when you yourself have a beam that is sticking out of your own eye. You are an absolute hypocrite. Get the beam out of your own eye first. One must go through the process of self-evaluation before approaching the sin of another. To correct our obscured spiritual blindness, we must first correct the problem that is in our own hearts, that is in our own life. You know what that produces? It produces a spirit of humility, doesn't it? He says, don't be a hypocrite. Literally, the word means a stage actor. Hypocrites give the outward appearance of righteousness, but inwardly, they are not what they appear to be. Remember Matthew 23, where Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. In the next two verses, he says this, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto the whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and are full of uncleanness. 
Even so ye also are outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Now when people say, you know, the church is filled with hypocrites, my response is always the same. Good, come and you'll fit right in because you're one too. No one is perfect. No one has perfectly cleansed their heart to the place that there is no sin. All sin has been eradicated from anybody's hearts. There is moments in time that everybody in this room has been a hypocrite. Everybody. But you know what the heart that Jesus is getting to? Is a heart that is inauthentic. In other words, living, giving off the perception that I have, give, I have figured life out, I am fully spiritual, I have fully arrived, I have no sin in my life, and you are just a poor, rotten, horrible sinner, and let me come and explain to you how you can be spiritually perfect like me. That is inauthentic, that is the heart of a hypocrite. I have a friend who says it this way, a hypocrite is somebody who pretends to be something they have no intention of ever being. They give the outward appearance. They use the vocabulary. Oh, they're quick to correct you. But in their own heart, they tolerate sin and they tolerate a spirit of judgmentalism. Before offering spiritual assistance to another, our first job is to carefully evaluate our own spiritual condition, including our attitudes of judgmentalism, condemnation, and our attitude of self-righteousness. Judgmentalism and a hypocritical spirit spends more time concerned with the spiritual faults of another, which are usually smaller in comparison than our own, and yet we overlook those that are in our hearts. We become hypocritical when we magnify the sins of others while ignoring or diminishing those that are in our own lives. So notice, Jesus does not forbid believers from addressing the sin problem of another believer. He commands believers to handle these situations correctly, lovingly, patiently, prayerfully, and only after careful self-evaluation. So let me give you my understanding of this process, right? We looked at Matthew 18 last week, and for sake of time, you won't go back and read that again. Remember Matthew 18 said, says it this way. If there is a fault between you and a brother, you are to go to him and you are to bring that fault before him and you are seeking restoration. I'm not there to condemn you, not there to judge you. My purpose is restoration between you and me and restoration of you toward a holy and righteous God. It says then that if that person does not listen and does not repent, you are to take two or three witnesses in order to confront that person. Again, these are people aware of the situation. They come with the purpose of restoration. If that does not happen, and the sin becomes more and more public, he says you are to bring it to the church so that the church would hear it for the purpose of restoration, the purpose of correcting them. And he says if they hear you and they repent, you have won back your brother. If they refuse, he says, put them out. That's judgment. For the purpose of restoration. The purpose is never condemnation. The purpose is to bring that person to repentance. So how do we do it? Well, number one, deal with your issue first. 
before you ever address the problem of another person. You pray about the situation, ask God to reveal your sin, assess your motive, ask for forgiveness from the person who is being addressed as necessary. And that's sometimes the piece that we miss. Sometimes when we go to confront somebody, we're agitated with them, we're irritated with them, whatever, and maybe we've sinned against them. Maybe we've had a horrible spirit toward them. Maybe we've gossiped about them. Maybe we have said hurtful things to them. And we're very quick when we come to somebody and they are in sin that we are very quick to jump to their problem. The principle is this. You start with you. And if I have ever sinned against that person, I start by acknowledging my sin toward them and asking them to forgive me. I also understand that I have to carefully assess my own heart, carefully assess my motive in going to that person. I'm not going to prove me myself right and to prove you wrong. I'm not coming to condemn you or to put you down. I am coming for the purpose of restoration. Then secondly, deal with the problem in the person's life with love, patience, and compassion. Approach the person with the goal of restoration, remembering the words of Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass... By the way, the picture of being overtaken by a trespass means he was caught unaware. He's been living life, and this sin problem has come upon him and engulfed him and consumed him. He says, if this brother has been consumed with the sin, he has been overtaken in a trespass. You who are spiritual, restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness, considering considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The other aspect of a hypocrite or somebody who is judgmental is they seem to have lost and lost the reality that they could fall into the same sin. That somehow they are immune. That's arrogant. That is putting myself over you that I am somehow more spiritually mature than you. In the last few moments, listen to these verses, and I want to give some, some illustrations of this, and then we'll, we'll close the service. Listen to 1 John 4. John writes this, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this love, not not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of For our sins, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. My question about this verse is this. We are commanded to love one another. But what does biblical love look like? There are things that we call love that, in fact, are not love at all. 
Let me give you five illustrations very quickly. Number one, tolerating things that are, divine, that are defined as wrong by God. They are defined as immoral. We tolerate it. We ignore it. Tolerating sin may create a comfortable surface peace. But tolerating sin is not biblical love when I simply overlook the sin of another person. It would be like seeing a person caught in a sin and watching them self-destruct and saying nothing. Saying nothing because I don't want to be thought of as judgmental. Or saying this, number two, that it's okay, don't worry about it. Saying that to a person who has clearly violated God's word. By overlooking sin without offering biblical forgiveness, you are encouraging the person to continue on in their sinful behavior. Is that love? Number three, asking others to tolerate whatever I do and whatever I say because they say they love me, and so therefore they shouldn't say anything to me. If you truly want other people to care about you and show you genuine biblical love, you encourage them to confront you when you're in sin. Number four, remaining silent when I should speak. Ecclesiastes 3.7 explains that there's a time to keep silence, there's a time to speak. Love covers a multitude of sins, but there are times that we are commanded to speak. Number five, maintaining peace at any cost isn't love. Ecclesiastes 3.8 explains there's a time of war and a time of peace. Peace at any cost is encouraging sinful behavior to go uncorrected. Ephesians 4.15 tells us clearly, speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Lacking truth promotes permissiveness. Lacking love produces judgmentalism and condemnation. These two things are joined together. Biblical love is committed to being part of what God says because it is the best for the life for that brother. As Christians, we are committed to being God's tools for what he says is best for the life of another person, even if it means I have to go through the stressful, uncomfortable, and difficult moments to get there. You see, love doesn't call wrong right. Love doesn't ignore sin and hope hopes that it goes away. Love doesn't turn its back on someone because he is wrong. Love doesn't stand over another in condemnation. Love doesn't passively ignore sin and remain silent when there has been a wrongdoing. Biblical love moves toward a person because they need to be rescued. They need to be reminded. They need to be warned of their sinful actions. Love is willing to make sacrifices and endure hardships so that the brother can be reconciled and restored back to a relationship with God. Believers can confront sin lovingly, graciously, and in the spirit of meekness while not being judgmental, not being condemning, and not being mean-spirited. Biblical love confronts sin for the purpose of restoration. Keeping that person from violating God's holy standards, bringing that person back into a right relationship with us, love keeps quiet when it should. But love speaks when it should. 
Love seeks God's wisdom as to when one should speak and as to when one should keep silent. So Jesus says, don't stand over another with a spirit of judgmentalism. Don't stand over another with a spirit of condemnation. Don't stand over another person with a lack of forgiveness. But you, after careful evaluation and removing the telephone pole from my eye, notice he doesn't say that brother has a speck in his eye, you got the telephone pole out of yours, so you say nothing. No. Get the telephone pole out of your eye so that you can rightfully see, so you're not spiritually blind, to go and to help that brother or sister in Christ get that speck out of their eye so that they too can see clearly, so that they can understand that biblical love speaks the truth. It speaks the truth in a spirit of love. Let's pray.